Hey folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 543 of the Survival Podcast. What are we going to talk today about? Well, let me tell you. The leaves are starting to change, the air is starting to grow cooler, and we are going to talk about deer hunting. All about deer hunting. Now, I can't tell you really all about deer hunting in an hour. It's it's impossible. It's something that, um, over time, you know, my uncles and uh, my father taught me over years uh, of actually being out in the field. So there's there's just no way that I could possibly condense all of those lessons into an hour. And many of them simply wouldn't translate to audio. But I'm going to try to give you my overview of deer hunting. And... Um, some of the lessons that I've learned about actually, you know, the mechanics, of what to do, how to do it, why you do it that way. And some of the bigger, deeper lessons that I learned in the deer woods, both as an adult and as a, as a young man, uh, and even as a, as a boy at one time. And uh, hopefully this will be a good show. And uh, so we're going to do that. But before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping, get that out of the way. Uh, housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is another new sponsor. We've got two new sponsors in this month. Um, some room was made for a variety of reasons, and uh, really happy to have this one on board. It's one you've probably heard of before, Emergency Essentials. Uh, they're the guys that put out that great catalog that they'll send you in the mail a few times a year. A uh, really great source of, uh, of, of prepper food from Mountain House, from Providing Pantry, and from people like that. Uh, great assortment of other emergency supplies. Absolutely top-notch customer service, great company to do business with, and again, you've probably heard of them because they've been around a long time and they've been taking care of the industry for a long time. We are very honored to have them as a new sponsor, so check their banner out, and they've got a customer appreciation sale going on this month. You'll find by clicking on their banner. Again, it'll be toward the bottom. We always bring new sponsors in at the bottom, and then each week, uh, one of our banners rotates to the top, and then that way they get to spend kind of a long time working their way back down as, a, as an entry. So check out Emergency Essentials. Sponsor of the day number two is the sponsor has been with us for a long time, well over a year. Almost, I'd say, God, he's got to have been here almost two years. One of our first. And that is, of course, the Berkey Guy with Directive21.com being his website. Uh, the Berkey Guy is, to me, the, the place to buy your Berkey water filtration uh, products. Uh, your, you know, your filters and things like that once you own a system or the system itself because you're going to get great competitive pricing, great customer service, and great consultation. If you call him up and you have questions, uh, he's going to work with you and help you figure out what you really need for your household. You might not need a great big giant system. You might need a smaller system depending on how many people you have in your household and, you know, what level of capacity that you're able to store once it's been filtered, like in bottles in your refrigerator and things like that. Um, it seems kind of elementary, but then when you sit down and you start thinking about plunking down a few hundred bucks on a water system, all of a sudden you start to have these questions. Well, the Berkey guy will answer them for you if you'll just pick the phone up and give him a ring. Or you can go right to his site and just order what you want if you know what you want. That banner, again, is on our website uh, with the Berkey guy, directive21.com. Uh, next up, check out our gear shop, man. we got a lot of new cool stuff in the gear shop. We've got the uh, M3 Medic Bags. Uh, we got ours like last week. Absolutely awesome bag uh, from Voodoo Tactical. 
one of the best bag manufacturers out there. Everything is double or triple stitched. Every layer of fabric is at least two layers of fabric. There's no single layers of fabric anywhere on the bag. It'll stand up to anything, and it's emblazoned with our TSP medical patch. It's just an awesome-looking patch that SysWolf designed. Uh, so check those out. we got some water bottles in. They're only $9.95 or something like that. Uh, 25 ounces, great big steel water bottles. Good to go with your uh, your water filtration system. There's a check the gear shop uh, out. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And um, I'll leave it at that today. You guys know the rest of the story. Lots of discounts. And uh, before you ask, our two new sponsors, BulkAmmo.com and Emergency Essentials, you bet when I get back next week, I'm going to be hitting them up. On that note, I am about to leave you again. Um, not for vacation. I was told, you take too many vacations now that you don't have a full-time job anymore. And I'm like, wasn't that the point? I mean, isn't that what I'm telling you guys to do, to get out there and enjoy your life? But uh, seriously, uh, we have work to do. We're moving in January. It's something I've been working for in my life for five years, really. To, 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 you know, Ever since we bought the place, I've dreamed of moving into it and, and making it our home. And one thing that needs to happen before we move in is we have to replace uh, all the carpeting in the dining room and living room. It's like one big, long, great room. And we're going up. My wife and I are going up there to lay a hardwood floor. So we'll spend about a week doing that. We're leaving tomorrow, or actually tonight, and then we're going to be there tomorrow through Sunday. So there won't be new shows for the rest of the week, and I was going to pre-record some, but with what happened with my buddy over the weekend, I just didn't do it, and I, I can't. Uh, so Wednesday and Thursday, I'm going to rebroadcast two very early shows um, about class warfare, part one and part two of that. And uh, if you've never heard them before, listen to them. If you have heard them before, you might want to listen to them now. I've chosen to do that because... We're about to go through what's going to be talked about as an earth-shattering historic election. And two years later, you're going to wonder what you got out of it. So I want to bring you back down to reality before you get disappointed. Um, so I'm going to put those on, and I don't know if I'm going to have anything to rebroadcast Friday. We might just skip Friday. With that, Lou, let's get into the main topic. You know, here's the deal. I walked outside today, and it's a little bit rainy and cold And uh, we just bought some new Christmas CDs, and I know it's not Christmas yet. Some of you are probably angry at the stores that already have the Christmas decorations in, but it is November, and I was putting them on the iPod last night so we'd have them for the Christmas parties we're going to do and all. And uh, it just started listening to a little bit of the stuff just to kind of feel it, to feel better because I've lost one of my best friends in the world. And all of that together, plus the work I've done recently on my place to uh, to attract deer to it, just had me thinking of all the great moments I spent in the deer woods. And I thought today, since I'm going to be going away for a few days, it'd be a good, happy topic for me to leave you guys with. And uh, I thought I'd start out by telling you, you know, over the years I've, I've, I've taken a lot of deer. I mean, probably close to 100 and uh, maybe more. But... And bigger deer than the one I'm going to tell you the story about. There's this little rack that sits up, uh, sits just up above me where I do my show every day, right over my window, way up high where I have to actually, you know, it's kind of in a weird place. I have to really look up there to see it. And it's the only rack that you'll see if you came into my office, the only buck rack. There's other racks they're here and there, but they're not really displayed. And here's this little closed, and by closed I mean not very widespread, little seven point buck rack. And that's a deer that I took when I was 15 years old, and I'm 38 years old now, so we're talking 20 some odd years ago. 
And yet that little rack sits there. And at least once a day I look up and I remember the day. So I thought I'd share that day with you and set the mood for what we're going to talk about. Because I know some of you guys aren't hunters, and some of you folks out there don't really uh, dig the whole killing of animals thing. Some of you do. I mean, but I want everybody to enjoy this show. So I want you to understand what it really is. And I think there's no more misunderstood person in society today than the hunter. I think the by, by the, anybody that doesn't understand him really doesn't understand him. So let me tell you the story. This goes back to um, the fall of my 15th year. And the year before, I had taken a doe with the bow. And later in rifle season, I had taken a, a spike buck with a rifle. So I'd taken two deer at 13, um, which was just as young as I could be and, and get to Pennsylvania and hunt. You, know, you get your license at 12 there, but we hadn't moved yet, so I had to start at 13 and uh, actually 14 by the time the hunting season came around. So this is when I'm 15 years old. And uh, I'd worked so hard that first year so they would let me bow hunt. Uh, we moved as soon as school closed, and that was June. Uh, and we mo we moved up to Pennsylvania. My dad was looking for a house. I lived with my grandparents. I bought a bow as quick as I could with, with money I had saved up to do it with. And I got a couple hay bales, and I stood out there, and I practiced every day until I could consistently put arrows into a group the size of the, the round part of a coffee cup, you know, at 25, 30 yards. And... Uh, just every day, constantly. I mean, I had to go buy new arrows because they would, you know, start taking fletching off from hitting them against each other and things like that. Um, but I wanted to prove to my uncle I could do this. That it was okay to take me out there. I didn't want to cripple a deer. I didn't want to, uh, to. That was the big thing. Missing is fine. Crippling, you don't want to do, especially you know, as an archer. That's your biggest concern is that you do a good humane kill. So I had gotten through that. And I took a doe, like, my third or fourth time out with the bow, which was a huge accomplishment for me. I have that hide as well, uh, still. And uh, But I said that second year, I'm going to commit myself to getting a buck. I'm going to get a buck with the bow. And so the, the deer season had just been extended to six weeks in the state of Pennsylvania. Six weeks instead of four. So that's a long time. And I let... Spike bucks walk, I let does walk, I let deer, by walk I mean I let them come in and I could have taken a shot and I didn't, and I let everything go, because I was going to wait for that buck. And I was after school every day, out in the woods, every single day, standing in those little tree platforms, and, and trying to pattern deer and figure out where I could get the next shot, and the second to the last day of the season, so this is almost a full six weeks, I was starting to regret my decision of letting how many you know so many deer walk. I could have put something in the freezer by then, but I wanted to do this. So we go out, and my uncle was with me, and he kind of set up a stand a little bit behind me. And that day, just as it was starting, the sun was starting to set, and the last day I actually wasn't even going to be able to hunt uh, to do to some family commitments. So this was my last day out there. And he did some rattling. And he did it again in about five minutes, just a little bit. And that's where you take you know, two deer antlers and rattle them together like deer fighting over a female. And nothing. And then I got this sense that there was an animal. I couldn't see it. I couldn't hear it. I got this sense, and I'll talk more about that later, that something was going on. And I just, without moving, started moving my eyes. No, no part of my body. I was completely frozen. Finally, about 50 yards away, I was able to make out the glint of an eye, the brown part of an eye. And I could see 
Then I could see the shape come in of the side of the profile of the face, and I could tell there was a there was a rack there. There was a you know it looked like a six pointer to me. It was best I could tell at the distance, and um, he was frozen, and he stood there for probably two or three minutes. It felt like an hour. If it had been an hour, it would have been dark by then. And um, slowly started making his way, and he was coming closer to me, but angling away. And at one point, he got to a point in the distance where he was, a pa when we paced it off from the tree, I thought it was right around 30 yards, and it turned out to be 27 yards away from me. And he was angling almost directly away, and if he kept going, he was gone. He was not going to come back. So I took the shot, and for you hunters that understand this quartering away shot, it's one of the tougher shots to make. Threading it through branches, right from like back where the stomach area is, but angling forward up into the chest and basically splitting right directly beautifully between the lungs, hitting the, the main artery that comes up out of the heart. And he took off in a blind run. He ran about 40 yards, fell, got back up, and then just ran off. And, and we, you know, we couldn't see him where he fell. Uh, and we heard what sounded like a crash. And um, I got down. My uncle came to meet me. He said it looked like a buck because he saw it as it ran off. I said, yeah. We looked where I shot, no blood, no hair, no nothing. We said, you know, let's just, we both had seen it stumble by this tree. It had a big white growth of fungus on it, made it really easy to mark. And when you're hunting, guys, if you see a deer stumble or something like that, you look for something and you go to that spot because that's likely where they'll, you know, push the arrow back or something, start to bleed out. It was a huge pile of blood, and we tracked him, and he went pretty far for the way he was hit, probably another 150 yards, and we found him and brought him home. But, you know, the thing was that we had kind of lost the trail for a bit, and my uncle went off one way, and I went off another, and I got there first, and I found him first, and I knelt down behind him and, and tapped him with the arrow to make sure he was dead so I wasn't going to get gored or anything, because that can't happen, and uh, he was dead. And I went up and I put my hands on that, that little rack that still sits up on my wall. And I was so happy. And then I realized I had just a, just a hint of tears in my eyes. And it didn't make any sense to me. Because I wasn't sad. It didn't hurt me to take this deer's life. It really didn't. It might hurt more today now that I understand it more than I did at the time. At the time, it wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't really get it. And I just kind of did the wife the thing, you know, and you got a little bit of blood on your hands and camouflage paint and all. And, you know, I didn't understand this till later. But what it was, I knew right then that my uncle, my father, all of their friends, all the people that we hunted with would stop calling me the kid. And they would see me as an equal because I'd done something, you know. I'd done something that many of them still hadn't done. There were there were grown men that we hunted with that they'd taken a deer with the with the rifle all the time, but they they'd never managed to pull off a buck with the bow. I mean, this isn't you know hunting in a preserve or something like that or a guided hunt. This is public land, and uh, that's what deer hunting is really all about to people that hunt. It's so much deeper than meat in the freezer. So think about that as I go through the rest of the show today. And I think you'll realize that even if you don't want to participate in the sport, you can understand it and you can understand the people that do. Now, the thing is, if you're going to hunt deer, you're going to have to understand that in the end, killing is a part of it. And you're hunting a creature who has evolved for longer than man has. There's been, the deer predate human beings. 
And they've evolved to avoid being killed because they are prey. They are not just prey for humans. They are prey, prey for wolves. Uh, they are prey for large bears. And that is, and, and for mountain lions. And today we look and we go, there's not a lot of mountain lions around. You know, in certain parts, in certain parts of California, they're actually becoming a nuisance in some other places. But, you know, when we look around, you know, most of the United States, we don't see a lot of mountain lions and we don't see a lot of large bears. Um, in, in much of the country. But before we went and, you know, took away their habitat and killed them all, there was a hell of a lot more of them out there than there are today. Basically, wherever the whitetail was, there was a predator for the whitetail. Wherever the mule deer was, there was a pre uh, predator for the mule deer. And that means that that species evolved with predators that can see better than you, hear better than you, and smell better than you, and run faster than you, and are stronger than you, and have to kill them to survive. Absolutely, if, they, if you don't kill a deer, you can go dig up a tuber. Right? Or go to the supermarket now. But if a grizzly bear, a grizzly bear is actually a bad event, they're more of, a, of an omnivore, but if a wolf doesn't get enough meat, it dies. So that deer evolved to evade the wolf, to evade the mountain lion. And I want you to think of yourself out there, if you had to evade the wolf or the mountain lion, I took away your weapons, and I put you on equal footing, and you just had to go out there and try to evade them, you don't have much of a chance. So that deer evolved to escape things faster than you are, with more incentive to kill than you have. So we have to understand our prey if we're going to be a successful hunter. And we have to understand that, that a deer has four primary advantages over human beings. The first one is sight. The thing about sight with a deer is a deer does not have the vision that a human being does in some ways. In some ways, our vision is superior. We see in color, they see in black and white. Because we see in color, we have a much greater ability to discern shape and texture when it's motionless than they do. But when it comes to movement, by seeing in that grayscale and having that acute sense of vision, far more acute than a human being's sense of vision, the slightest motion shows up for them. So you have to understand that it's not just that they see better than you in certain ways, but how they see better and why they see better. They see better because they are much better at detecting motion than you are. And many times it's their motion that gives them away. We also see motion better than, than we see stillness. But we can pick out shapes that are still better than a deer can. So you have to understand the advantage and the corresponding way that you counter it. The next one is, is, is sound, hearing. A deer hears the way a dog hears. Sounds that are completely, totally imperceptible to you are loud and clear for a deer. And this has to do with more things than just being silent. We talk, I talked about rattling with my first rack buck with a bow. You don't have to always smash the antlers together. Sometimes just a little tickling of the tips. Because you know what? The difference is if you hear that sound in the woods, sounds that you hear and the deer hear, you guys hear them differently. You hear the sound and you know it kind of comes from over there. When deer hear a sound, it's like GPS, global positioning system with, with audio. They know exactly where it came from. So if you're sitting in a tree and you shift and that antler or that, that, that arrow comes off of your, at your rest and, and taps the side of the bow so imperceptibly you barely hear it, 
They've heard it, and they know exactly where to look when they get to that area. If it's not enough to scare them off, sometimes it's even curiosity. I'm going to go see what that is. What's, what's hanging out? But there are times when deer will probably move in when you've made a sound and not realized it. Hang out. Wait for you, just like that deer did, and I made it, managed to wait him out because I spotted him, and I felt he was there. Wait for you to move to scratch the mosquito that's on your face or whatever. Identify you and, and work around you, and you never even knew they were there because of that hearing. The next one is scent. This, a deer can smell you literally a mile away or more. That's why you always have to be watching the wind with deer. And it's easy for people to look at like the Outdoor Channel or like you have this private hunting preserve and it's like 25,000 acres and they feed the deer and they come out in the field every morning and every night and there's 20 of them walking around out there and guys out there picking the one with the best antlers and shooting and thinking that deer don't must not really have that level of acute sense. Well, they become accustomed to it, especially in an area where they don't feel threatened. But let me tell you the, the honest truth. When I was a young man, and I started, these types of shows started coming out on TV, and I would see a guy, you know, with another guy, 150 yards away in a blind with, with binoculars going, look at that one, look at, look at that one. Oh, okay, the one behind there. And they're whispering to each other, and they're just milling around, and there's like 18 bucks out in the field together. You know what I thought? That's bullshit. That doesn't even happen. I never saw anything like that until I came to Texas. It was very rare to even see two bucks together um, in, in Pennsylvania. And if you did, it was usually one kind of following, like a yearling maybe following one two or three years older that was just kind of hanging with him. And until the rut, you know, that, that kind of stuff would play out. But th this herd of bucks together, I, I didn't even believe it. So it's easy to see these things on TV, but when you go out in your woods where there's public hunting and you don't have everything set up perfectly, and the deer aren't protected and managed and things like this, and it's real hunting, that scent is their number one advantage, and you have to do everything you can to mitigate it. The next one is instinct. I talked about in my hunt, I knew he was there. You can do that. They do it better. They do it better. I have never taken a deer at close range with a bow where they were totally unaware of my presence. They might have not, I mean, they obviously didn't know I was really there, they didn't know I was really a threat, because if so, especially with a bow, there's no way you'd get the bow drawn and released. But there were telltale signs in every instance that they knew something just wasn't quite right, but they live in a place where never is anything quite right, and they have to always make this judgment Is it okay? Do I go here? Do I go there? You know, I can't smell it. I can't see it. I don't hear it, but I know. You see that in them. When you take one with a rifle at 200 yards, they, you don't. But the bow is so much more up close, and it makes you understand your prey better. That instinct is something you will never completely counter. You only counter it by mitigating their advantages with sight, hearing, and scent. Because they'll know with instinct but they trust the other three senses sometimes to their demise. So now the other thing we have to do, if you're going to look at harvesting prey, if you understand its advantages, the next thing is obviously, well, what are its weaknesses? The weaknesses of deer, number one, and the biggest one that they have, if they're not pushed heavily, 
If they're, you know, when you get into like public hunting season with rifles in highly populated areas where literally, you know, everybody wears orange so nobody shoots anybody else, and you go out on the first day of deer season, and when the sun comes up, you're in your stand, you thought you were alone, and you can see 10 people hunting, they go off of this. But in all other situations, deers follow remarkably consistent patterns. Um, it, we, if we go before, the sexual urges really come up, or after that, you know, they have a very clear pattern of, you know, a lot of nocturnal activity whenever they can do it, because they know they're safer in the dark, but movement from bedding areas to feeding areas and back. And if you understand that pattern, and you can understand the sight, hearing, and scent issues, and mitigate those, and intercept that pattern, it's very possible to put yourself in the right place to simply just intercept them with stand hunting of one form or another. Um, they also have very clear patterns when you get into the rut. Bucks will set up a territory. They'll set up a line of scrapes and rubs. Uh, a scrape being a place where they take their antlers and they rub their antlers on a tree. And it just looks like somebody took, almost like somebody took a rock or a knife and just scraped bark off the tree. Um, and, and, and then scrapes are where they will basically paw the ground and there'll just be this cleared area. It looks like somebody came in and just kicked the leaves out. And dug in the dirt a bit. Sometimes you'll see the tines of the antlers pressed into the ground. A lot of times above a, a scrape, you'll see a branch that was low-hanging that's been chewed on and rubbed with secretions from his eye. And he'll pee in there. He'll pee. So it, I mean, it sounds gross, but this is what they do. you got to understand it. They urinate down their leg, and there's a, a gland called the hot gland on the lower part of their leg. And let the urine flow across that. It picks that hormone up. And that signals their desire to breed. And females will, will come there. And uh, when they're in, in heat and they're ready to breed, they'll also urinate in those scrapes. So that buck, during that period of time, is going to follow a pattern of constantly checking those scrapes and rubs. And the only time he's going to break that pattern is to sleep, defend his territory against rivals, very little eating. They, lose, they, they look bigger because they swell up, but they lose weight during the rut. Uh, so very little eating at all. And... Um, when he finds a willing doe and he chases her off to breed her. And as long as he's with that willing doe, as long as she'll let him breed, he'll stay there. But as soon as she's decided she's done breeding, he goes right back to that pattern. So the patterns are a huge advantage if you understand them and you understand their timings. Because we have a basic pattern of eat and evasion of threats. We move into a period of sexual activity called the rut. And after that, we go into a period of rebuilding because these bucks run themselves down so much, they need to rebuild their stamina. And the doe, who will soon be dropping fawns in the spring and is coming to winter, needs to build up her strength as well. So we go back to a heavier pattern of browse and eat and move and things like that. Deer also have remarkably small territories. Many deer will live their entire life in a square mile or two and never venture outside of there. You'll be sure I've covered every bit of this land. There ain't a deer here, and they're there. They've evaded you like a rabbit. My first buck I ever shot, spike buck, um, my father, uh, after we were in the trees for a couple hours, my uncle and I, my father showed up later and walked through to see if he could kick anything to me and uh, got to my tree, and I was freezing cold. I just wanted down, you know, and I said, should I get down? He said, no, stay up there. I'll walk up to your uncle, and we'll come back and get you because something might circle around me, and that's exactly what happened. My uncle actually saw the deer, and it was a spike bug, and he wasn't going to shoot it, and he watched my father walk about 10 yards away from it, and my dad never saw him, and this is pretty sparse wintertime woods, uh, a little bit of snow on the ground even. He said that deer laid down, let his ears go flat on his back like a rabbit, and, and then slunk off. 
And Michael said he just thought, well, if you stay in the, because the woods kind of broke down to a funnel, I was in a funnel. Funnels where you have wide woods that break down to a narrow pass, and then they, they go back up. He said, if you stay in this patch of woods, you're going to be dead. And about 15 minutes later, they heard the shot. Um, so there are these patterns. And if you understand them again, and you accept that the deer are going to behave by these instincts, and you resist certain urges like getting down out of a tree and understand that they don't always run away from danger. Sometimes they let danger pass. And they hold into these very small geographic areas you start to realize they are there. And you're just doing something wrong if you can't find them. The next thing is they are driven by primal urges. They're absolutely driven by these primal urges to breed. I've kind of talked about that, so I won't go much deeper into it. But um, when it comes to breeding, and when that season for that to occur happens, they will not be taken away from it. They will continue to to run that cycle and look for any weed, uh, willing doe to breed. And the does, when they're not in estrus, when they're not in heat, will pretty much just behave like they always have, except they'll be a little bit irritated by the pursuing bucks that, when they're not ready or they've already bred. But when they go into the same point where they're ready to breed, they're just as driven. Not the way human beings are, but there's a certain necessity of reproduction of the species in the instinct of the animal. So those primal urges are a weakness. They're also territorial, and I mean this differently than what I just said about them having small geographic regions. They will defend a territory, even does. If a population gets too high, um, the more uh, aggressive does will run the other does off. If the if the if there starts to become sparse browsing and there's not enough food, uh, does also have alphas, um, and bucks definitely have alphas, and they they have a hierarchy. And they defend those territories, again, so you can use that to your advantage if you understand it. And the biggest advantage you have <clears throat> is that I think we have a tendency that at times we tend to anamorphize, which is to, to assign human characteristics to animals. And we shouldn't do that. We need to resist this temptation. To, to like start overthinking things as a hunter and think, well, you know, he knows that I do this. He doesn't know that you do anything. He perceives you when you're there and he worries about you when you're not, but he doesn't understand any of these things. Your advantage is you know the advantage and the disadvantage. And all the animal has is a will to survive and a lot of natural adaptation to do so. Deer cannot think like humans. Your mind is the real advantage. Because without that, they would win every single contest, every single time. It doesn't even matter if you have a gun or a bow. If you didn't have the ability to think, deer would quickly adapt beyond our ability to pursue them. It is only our mental capabilities to understand the patterns, to understand the territories, to understand the seasons, to understand their drive to eat, to sleep, to be protected, to use the wind. These are the things that give us the real advantages. I want to go into now a little bit about different methods of hunting and, and my thoughts on them because I know there's a uh, perception that the other the grass is always greener it is a metaphor that's never more true than hunting. I, I remember I used to watch these, these TV shows when I was a kid. You know, some of the first ones that came out, really. And I'd be in this little tree stand. I mean, 
it, it was so small that I couldn't even use it today. I'd have to make a bigger one. And it was like this little piece of plywood, and it was painted camouflage. It had some metal pieces on it, and it was what's called a, a hug-and-climb stand. And it had these straps. You'd strap your feet to it and, and put it around a tree. Uh, you put it around a tree first and step on it, strap your feet in these straps. And you hug the tree, and then you point your toes down, you pull your legs up to your chest, and then you relock it, and you stand up again, and you keep doing that, until you get yourself up in the tree. And then you find out that you can't really shoot in all directions, especially with a bow, because you have to draw the bow back, and the tree's in the way. So you have to look at your field of fire and your most likely places, and you have to accept the fact that there's some areas you won't be able to shoot. Even with a gun, there's some directly behind you. right? You can only turn and twist and contort so many ways. And every time you move, you give away your location. So I, I was hunting that way, and I would watch these people on TV sitting in a blind that looked like a little house. And I would think, that's not hunting. And then after experiencing hunting that way, I realized it's certainly different. It's certainly easier in some ways, but it's still hunting. And there's places where, you know, it's almost necessary. I've watched some of these guys that hunt up in northern Canada that, you know, without that, they would literally freeze to death on stand. Those guys sit out there for, you know, Nine hours uh, straight in in sub zero temperatures, um, but my point is, is I go through these, understand that when you hear something you've never done before, there's a natural tendency to think it's like shooting fish in a barrel, to coin another phrase. Um, but it's not always as easy as you think it's going to be. Uh, the the number one way that people think of when they think of deer hunting, especially with a bow, is stalking. That's where you go out and you 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 move through the the woods at at a you know a, a moderate speed quietly stealthily you're looking for your prey it's a spotting maneuver first and once you spot sign or you spot the prey itself in the distance then you organize that very careful very methodical stalk um this was another way that I, I when I you know I, I hunted on stands and I saw how deer were and I'm like I, the guys that did that, I was in awe of at the time. I thought this is impossible, you know. That I, I had so many instances where there were deer close to me, and I couldn't even get a shot off. And I realized there's an inherent advantage of being up in a tree stand, and there's an inherent advantage of being on the ground. Um, you blend in better on the ground in some ways. Uh, deer don't generally walk around looking up, but once they know something's fishy on the upside, um, it's a lot more likely for you to be silhouetted by sky. Uh, there's certain places you can't put a tree stand. If you put a tree stand on the top of a ridge, they call that a lollipop on the stick. You stand out. So stalking has some inherent advantages as well. And it's also a very primal way to hunt. It's a proactive way to hunt. In some ways, it's easier because it requires less patience. You know, I, I've learned that when you're doing anything, Even if it's not working, as long as you're engaged in an activity, it engages the mind to a point where you're, you're happy to continue that activity. So one of the big advantages with stalking is since you're moving, you're seeing things. You're engaging with things. The other advantage of stalking is you are also scouting when you stalk or scouting when you're hunting. So the, 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 the person that stalks is more likely to come across signs. To find, hey, look, here's a rub line. Here's a, here's a scrape line. There's a buck using this area. Then the person that stand hunts and just has scouted preemptively and has gone and set up several locations where they can go put stands in place. 
You also, as a stand hunter, may one day, you know, you got your stand on your back, you're heading into your spot, and uh, you're hunting public property. If you're doing that, you go and there's a guy sitting in your tree or one right next to it. That spot is just, you know, you're not going to go in there and ruin it for him. And there's no, there's no claim to something like that. So the stalker can always go somewhere else. Very closely related to stalking is what's called still hunting. Now, the way still hunting differs from, from, from spot and stalk is with spot and stalk, you've got a kind of that moderate pace, and then you're looking for sign, you're looking for some kind of a spot, and then you're organizing a stalk. Still hunting is like almost stalking full time. You're always stalking. The still hunter, once they're into an area that's known to hold animals, begins to move very, very slowly. Over an hour, they might cover 150 to 200 yards. They're moving, but almost imperceptibly slow. The advantage here is you're covering ground, but you're moving slower. You're less likely to alert your prey. It's something I've never really had the patience for with deer. I still hunt a lot for squirrel, um, but with deer, I'm much more of a stand or a stock hunter. But still hunting is kind of a middle ground between being on stand and being a stalker. And the two overlap. There are people that will kind of go on the spot and stalk mode. They don't really see any sign, but they know the area is thick with deer. And once they move into a certain area where it's harder to move quietly, they're more likely to spook an animal, they go into a still hunt mode. When they come out the other side of that, they go into more of an up pace mode, and they mix the two together. And it's almost always the case that there's overlap between the two, but they're two distinctively different techniques. The still hunter moving so imperceptibly slowly will often come upon his prey and obtain a shot without actually making a stalk after spotting it. The next is stand hunting, and specifically tree stand hunting. Tree stand hunting is a unique experience. It requires extensive discipline. It exposes you massively to the elements. It's inherently limiting. If you're in a box blind and you spot a deer with binoculars going somewhere else, you can relatively easily exit that blind, or if you're on a, a ground blind or whatever, and you can organize a stalk or organize an intercept. You try to climb out of a tree in that situation, you're, you're not pulling it off. You're in that tree, you're in that tree for the duration of the hunt. You have to be patient, and you have to wait like that jaguar on the tree that sees the deer in the distance but can't get down, and you have to wait for your opportunity to pounce. There is never a time that I've been alone with my thoughts the way I am in that tree stand. As you're standing there, or some of the newer stands have nice little seats and you can sit in them or what have you, and you're waiting. Everything in your life that you've been putting off or dreading or looking forward to, all of them come together. And you're able to be in a type of meditation that can go on for hours where you have a heightened awareness of your surroundings, but you have an internal dialogue cycling. And no time will you see things more naturally than when you're in a tree. When you're on the ground, things know you're there more than they do a tree. And I'm not talking about just deer. I'm talking about squirrels and birds. And There's been times I've been up in a tree stand, sitting there with a bow, both uh, being held with my hands on top of it, clasped, you know, like got a fingers interlock thing where you're resting your, your arms on the bow, and at the bottom of the bow is sitting on the tree stand or up against one of your feet, 
You've got an arrow knocked. There's no way you're going to knock that arrow in that situation. And I've had little black cap chickadees come by, start landing in a tree around me and eating things. I've had them land on my arrow and look at me with the head net on and all and know that's something not quite right there, but I don't think it's going to hurt me and I don't think it's dangerous and cock their little head and you try to keep from laughing. People that hunt on the ground don't see that. I've watched small game hunters pass by me. Usually I'd signal them to make sure they didn't see an animal and take a shot and, and, and you know, drop friggin' shotgun shells, uh, shotgun pellets on me or something like that, but easily could let them walk past and never know I was there. I've seen grouse get in fights, male grouse fight each other. I've seen male grouse eating rotten fox grapes that are fermented And you, you can eat them and they wouldn't do much to you, but a little bird doesn't take much alcohol. I've seen male grouse drunk on fox grapes, staggering through the woods and drumming. And a grouse drum, it's like a... You'll hear with their wings. They do that in the spring to attract mates. When they do that in the fall, it's they're drunk. They think it's spring. I've seen turkeys walk through. I've seen raccoons. One time I saw a bear, big black bear, probably about a 300-pound blackie, came through. And uh, was just tearing up logs and eating stuff, and he's going through, and he's putting his paws up on claws up on trees and scratching trees and grunting and popping his teeth and doing what bears do, you know. And uh, he came through, and he actually put one of his paws up on my tree, and I was thinking, "Jeez, you know, you put another one on there and start climbing up this tree. I don't care if season or not, you're getting a satellite broadhead through your head." Uh, it was a little bit intimidating, but then he went on. And, uh, I mean, these are things you don't see any other way. So if you're ever going to be a deer hunter, I encourage you to learn about tree stand hunting and be safe with it. Uh, as a youngster, I never wore a harness. Um, always thought they were more trouble than they were worth. Um, being a little bit more in touch with my mortality, uh, in most instances now I will wear a harness. Some places I actually believe the harness can be more dangerous Uh, than not wearing it. It's bulky, it gets in the way, you're more likely to actually cause an accident, but um, there are places where it's really necessary. And the big thing is understanding your stand and knowing there's certain things you can do to shift it where you can cause it to fail and not doing those things and making sure that you know you, the time to test your stand isn't when you're, you're sitting there and all set up and ready to go. It's when you still are inverted and you, you can grab the tree and shimmy back down it And you, you know, you kind of kick off your, 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 your bands that hold your feet to it and you push it and you do everything you can to try to make it fail. And if it starts to fail, you know, you, you, you go back down or you reposition or do what you have to do. Tree stand hunting can be dangerous with a portable stand. Now there's permanent stands. You can build a stand. There's things like that as well. And they're inherently more safe. Um, but to me, personally, nothing, um, nothing gives me the flexibility like a climbing stand. I can go anywhere, any place, as long as I can find a good straight tree of the right girth, and there's a lot of flexibility. It can be pretty narrow. It can be uh, pretty wide. Uh, I can set up and I can hunt. And it also takes some skill to learn how to climb a tree quietly. So very different. You don't want to scrape the tree as you're doing that. You want to be very, very quiet, not give away your position. Blind hunting is a lot like tree stand hunting, but I just don't think it's the same. And I've done both, and I've done it everywhere. And there's times where one has to be, Uh, done over the other. If you're in certain places, you really have a disadvantage on the ground, but there's other places where there were some places I hunted in Pennsylvania where it was very mature oaks, and all of the trees that were in the area uh, were either really young that were not suitable, or so big you couldn't get a stand on them. I mean, these oaks were, you couldn't get your arms around them. 
So there's times when you have to default to a blind. You hunt in certain parts of Texas. What are you going to do? Climb up a 14-foot mesquite tree? Get five feet up and it doesn't even make any sense. So there's times where one has to happen over the other. The other type of hunting, though, that was it's really a tradition in the Northeast, and I wanted to talk to you about today, because this is like, just like the person from the Northeast looks down at Texas and the guy sitting in a box blind hunting feeders and, and thinks this isn't hunting, the Texan looks at this guy and goes, that's not hunting, because what they do is they'll get maybe ten guys together, and they'll send three of them down to the end of a, of a piece of bush, It's standards, and then the other guys will sp spread out, almost like a military formation, and move through the woods. And there's different types of drives. There's drives. I've always pre preferred the very quiet, very me methodical, almost like spot and stock for your drivers uh, type of drive, because that tends to push the deer slowly out and give your, your standards a better uh, uh, shot. But some people will go and they'll hoop and holler and beat the bush. And I mean, it's all depending on, you know, how many, how many drivers that you have, how big your whole party is, what kind of woods you're pushing deer out of. But it's a very effective way to hunt. They limited in Pennsylvania drive parties to 25 people and you had to keep a roster at that. And, um, never really the way that we hunted. We didn't like to hunt with that many buddies with us. We kind of liked to hunt as much as we could alone. But my uncle, my father, and I would often do drives, and we would just put one stander and put two pushers. And you'd put one pusher driving where you thought the deer were, and you'd flank with another one so that you know, that was the place the deer was most likely trying to, uh, to double back on you, trying to anticipate that. And uh, the person that was walking that path might get a shot, uh, or the deer might become aware of their presence and then hopefully push down to the stander. And it's a very effective way to hunt, especially later in the season when all that pattern stuff is out the window. And that's what I don't think a lot of people that, that look at driving and see it as, you know, kind of like this easy way to hunt don't understand. By the time you're doing that, the deer have been hunted heavily. And the dumb ones are gone. They've been taken out, you know. Um, and they're off pattern. I mean, they, they're waiting out in a hunting season. A lot of these places is two weeks long or less. And they've come to accept that. It's kind of been part of their genetics at this point, and they're waiting it out. They'll starve for two weeks. They'll wait till you're back home and eating soup behind the stove, and then they'll start going back to their lives. So sometimes it's the only way to push these deer, because deer will go into these thick spaces, and you'll look at a piece of woods, and it's 100 yards by 100 yards. It's a little square, you know, about the size of a football field or smaller. It might be a quarter of that size. And there's little narrow patches, and it seems like you can, it's a lot of the leaves are off, and you can see everywhere, and it's just this thick brambles, and you think there's no white, or anything could possibly be in there. And you go in there, and you can barely move, and those deer will come out of there, and they slip out of there like a rabbit, and you wonder how they slip through those briars and brambles, and it doesn't touch them. They slip through it like they're coated with Teflon, but they're in there, and driving sometimes is really the only way to get them out. I want to give you some tips and tricks, uh, some thoughts on, on deer hunting and being more successful. Uh, number one, it, my uncle taught me this early on. He told me, kid, the real hunting is from Febu February to September. And I said, I don't get it because we hunt in October and a little bit of November and sometimes December. And if you, know, you hadn't taken one, there's a late season in January. I, I don't really get this. And he said, knowing where the deer are, pattering them, understanding them, And knowing what, you know, actually targeting certain deer and going after them, that all happens from February to September when everybody else isn't thinking about it. That's when you need to get out in the woods. Whether it's in, you know, whether it's out there with a squirrel rifle or out there hunting fox and raccoons in the winter when the snow's down. It's like the snow's down in February. 
All the hunting's over, except you can still go out there and shoot crows, or you can go out there and chase raccoons, or just take the rifle with you as, just to do it. But you can be, you can pattern deer better at that time than any other time. Now, they're not going to be in the exact same place, because they're going to run a different pattern, because they're going to go to the sunny side of the, the mountain to stay warm and things like that. But you can find them. You can start to identify certain ones of them, and you can follow them and watch their pattern change in through the spring and the summer. And by fall, you can see the pattern that they're going to go into by the time you're going to hunt them. So if you spend time in the woods from, from February to September, you'll be more successful from October to January. And people will wonder how you do it. And when you tell, you can, they said, it's not a secret. You can tell them. They just won't even believe you. Or if they do, most people won't take and make the effort to make it happen. Because it's the last thing on their mind on a cold February day to go out and see where the deer are and what the deer are up to when they can't shoot any and hunting season's over. The next one, and this is one that my uncle taught me as well, is one of the best things you can get your hands on are the little uh, 35mm film cases. Uh, as many of them as you can get. And there's not a lot of film being used anymore because of digital cameras, but um, they are a great tool. What you do is you get some boiling water. And uh, you sanitize them in boiling water to kill any scent in there that doesn't belong there. And then you take sterile cotton, and you put two or three cotton balls in each one of them. And you saturate that with different scents. Like, dough and heat is my favorite one to use for this. But there's like a, a product called deer formula. It just smells like a variety of different deer uh, and, and, and other attractant scents. Uh, but again, that dough and rut uh, is from Tinks. is probably the best thing I've ever seen. Wickedly stench nasty smell but inside that little container you don't smell it and when you go out and hunt especially with stand hunting you go to certain spots where you would most like to have a shot and what i've learned is even the doe and rut stuff you got a doe coming through she walks by that she locks up on it smells it they put that head down that's an opportunity it stops them and they put their head down i mean the ideal situation for drawing the bow is the foreleg facing you is forward, exposing more of the vitals. The head is down and behind a tree or some bushes. And you've got an open shot and their view is obstructed. That's perfect. Well, by using film containers this way with your scent, um, you can you can set that advantage up. And now there's a lot of products out there that kind of come prepackaged, things to hang in trees and stuff like that. But we were doing this when one of, none of those things existed. All deer scents were in little bottles. That's the only way you could get them at the time. There were no scent biscuits and drags and all this other stuff. Um, and it's still a very cost-effective way to do things because you can take that one little bottle of scent and you can make five or six of these little scent bombs and use them. Another note is drags. Drags work, but you got to be careful with them. A drag is where you take like a piece of cloth, tied to my foot, and as I'm walking into my stand, I saturate that with deer scent, and I drag it behind me. There have been hunters, scent it up with doe and rut, buck smells them, decides that must be a doe, goes into hyper overdrive and jumps on them and tries to do what bucks do to does. And there's times when that buck realizes at the last second, that's not a doe. And then he goes into, like, normally there's no way a deer would ever attack you. It just doesn't happen. But at that point, it's it's I, now I've I brought the confrontation on myself. I have to defend myself, and they drop the antlers on you. So you got to be careful with that. But it, it, it can be done. I would never do it with doe and rut lure. I would do it with something like deer formula or something like that. It smells like a deer. Uh, but the doe and rut stuff, if you're going to do it, put it on a drag cloth and drag it 10 feet behind you. Um, I think you'd be safer putting it into some kind of little eyedropper or something like that 
and dropping just a little trace of it every 50 feet or so, trust me, you don't need a constant trail for a buck to be able to follow that. Uh, again, that scent works for them and against them. Um, the next thing is my little trick called a bag full of pine needles. When hunting season would come around, especially uh, archery season, where you're much more in close proximity, you're much more on a pattern, I would take all my hunting clothes and I would wash them in unscented soap, and I would go back behind our house and just get handfuls of fresh pine needles pulled off the tree, and I'd put them in a bag, and I'd put the clothes in the bag with the pine needles, and I'd close that bag up, and then I'd get one of them rubber tubs and put that inside the tub, and all my hunting clothes stayed in there. And I would put that in, and I would keep that, and it helps keep the human scent down. It helps mask the human scent. And this is before the days of scent, scent elimination sprays and soaps and things like And it worked just fine. And scent suits and all this other stuff that they have now. I'm not putting that stuff down. I'm just saying these are ways to do it without all that expense. You know, to so just basic clo uh, camo clothing and, and, and taking these steps goes a long way to scent mitigation. The other thing is I would get dressed in the field. I wouldn't dress at home because then I get in the car, the car smells, all that other stuff. You know, we'd get out there and either have it in the back of the truck or the trunk of the car, pull out the bin and you know, strip down to your skivvies and get dressed in the field. And uh, you just do it quick and efficiently and get it done. And then that, all that extra scent wasn't taken with you in there. And after a certain amount of time, you know, of course, you'd have to wash these clothes, but you'd go in, unscented soap, washed, back in the bag, back in the bin. Um, I think one of the biggest things that brought us success was taking those extra steps. Um, next thing is always, 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 always be reading the wind constantly. Um, another advantage of the stock hunter, a person that's stalking or driving, you can adapt to wind changes. There's nothing worse when you've got deer patterned, you've got the wind red, and you know that in the evening, let's say, toward the evening, there's maybe some, some agricultural fields that deer like to go out and feed in at night, and they move from their bedding location out to those fields, and you've set up a perfect intercept point, and you don't just have the wind blowing good. You got it perfect. It's kind of angling across you and out toward the field. So you've got the maximum range of, of, of place to intercept where you've got the wind in your favor, and you're sitting up there in that tree, and all of a sudden the wind just shifts. It just shifts. And there's times where it's like a little mini breeze or something like that, and it doesn't go on. And there's times where it just it's just a new pattern of wind for that day or for the next week, and you don't know how long it's going to last, but it's going for a while. And all of a sudden, everything you've set up has changed. Well, you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of that happened. You need to always, always, always be re re uh, reading the wind, because it's not always heavy wind. The deer don't need that. They just need the slightest breeze in the direction to carry your scent down to them and become aware of you and not even spook. Just avoid. A lot of times they, they sense it. They know there's a human there, but there's humans in the woods anyway and they're not always being threatened and it's not that I'm really that scared. I'm just going to avoid a close confrontation and I'm just going to go around and go out to my normal place. So you have to stay aware of this because as the wind shifts, as there's a permanent shift, you've got a couple choices to make. One, you might need to just give up and, or reposition if it's early enough in the day and go to a new place and set up a new stand if you really think it's a permanent change. More likely what you may need to do is <clears throat> reevaluate your ground around you and maybe get that stand if you can and rotate it or start watching different directions because what you might find out is that now a deer has been actually pushed by your scent or another person's scent from another direction and the place you never expected them to come from, they'll show up. 
But if you're not paying attention to that, you'll never know. The next one is stay warm or stay cool, depending on the time of year it is. Early season archery, it's easy to get sweated up. You sweat up, you stink. You're uncomfortable and you smell. Not good. In the wintertime, if you're too cold, you're miserable. You're not thinking right. You lose opportunities. You give up. You leave. So good, solid, cold weather gear is a must. Um, I like to wear uh, felt pack boots with uh, Gore-Tex on the outside. Uh, I think they're a great way to stay warm on a stand. Uh, the little hand warmer things and all can help. They don't do that much. The electric sock thing, I tried that. I got nothing out of that other than socks falling down my legs and being uncomfortable. I never really felt uh, warm with them. There's little tricks you can do. You know, you can't be moving around a lot, but you know, wiggling those toes and those boots keeps the blood flowing, tries to keep your feet warm. Uh, but dress for the weather and be prepared to be in layers or have additional clothing. You're out there, you think it's going to, you know, a lot of times when we would, I'd carry a pack with me, and I'd carry like a long sleeve uh, camouflage uh, piece of clothing, like a sweatshirt or something like that, or just long sleeve uh, camo shirt in my pack, and I'd walk in in a t-shirt. But once I got up on stand, I put that shirt on, because it was actually pretty cool out, but when you're carrying a stand, you're walking several miles in, you're trying to be quiet, and at the same time you're trying to move with some expediency, you can build up some heat. So by having the ability to flex, but definitely you got to stay warm and stay cool. Be organized. Have a kit for what you need to do. I mean, most hunters carry a knife, and that's going to take care of your skinning and quartering and caping and things like that. But there's a lot of other things that, I mean, new deer hunters just don't think about. When you get, if you're, you're going up in a tree stand, how are you going to get your gun or your bow safely up to you and back down? Well, you carry a rope with a little dog clip on it. You know, and you keep that wound up, and that goes in your kit. Um, you know, a lot of times I would carry a little screw-in uh, hanger or a bolt. Uh, uh, I like this belt on one I've got now better so that I could actually hang my bow or hang some of my gear in the tree. usually carried a, a pack that had um, kind of a clip together on the backside so you could actually take your, you don't can't have your pack hanging on you. Don't want it hanging from your stand. So you put it around and hang it from the tree on the side so that it's out of your way. Um, you know, if you're going to be eating in the woods, bring some food. Uh, some other things that like I think a lot of people just never think of. We would always carry toilet paper, self-explanatory, uh, on one level, but on a totally different level. You've got a deer that's hit, no snow on the ground. It's getting dark. You've found some blood. Drop a couple pieces of toilet paper where you found that blood. If you lose the trail, coming back and finding it again is much easier. You're walking through the woods. You think that's blood on that leaf. Is it blood or is it water? you got a flashlight and you're not sure. You take a piece of toilet paper, you touch it to it, and you look at it. If it's blood, you'll know. So it has another advantage. Another thing that I've you know often come across people hunting that field dress a deer, which is where you gut it and you leave the entrails out in, in the woods, and that's something a lot of people would maybe have a problem with, but it really harms nothing. Scavengers and all eat it, and it's a natural process. It breaks down. It doesn't hurt anything. And uh, one of my favorite things to eat from a deer is the heart. And one of my one of the things I always take, I don't like it, but I always cut it up and feed it in small portions to the dogs, is the liver. So I carry two great big gallon-size Ziploc bags. And after field dressing a deer, you put it inside one plastic bag, clean your hands off as best you can, put one bag inside the other, zip that up, throw that up back into the chest cavity of the deer, drag your deer out. You need a drag rope. right? I mean, unless you're hunting where you can pull the truck up and throw them in, you've got a fairly large animal, and you ain't going to throw it over your shoulders and carry it. That's a good way to get shot, first of all. But the bigger deer, you're not going to do it anyway. You just ain't going to happen. It's not practical. 
Um, you're also going to get hair and blood and crap all over you. It's just not the way to carry an animal if you don't have to. Dragging is very effective. So you need a drag rope, about four, four to five foot piece of heavy rope, unlike your narrow rope for, for you know, carrying uh, your, your gun or your, your bow up and down out of the tree. Now, these are some basic things that you need to have on you. you got to have water on you for a lot of reasons. One, to drink. Two, you need more than you need to drink. You get done, you've got blood everywhere, cleaning some stuff up and, and getting hair off you and things like that. It'll make your, your, your whole process go better. But be organized. Think ahead. Think for every contingency. And then the big one is learn to feel, like I talked about in my first story. Learn to feel. When you're in the woods and you feel something, stop and take in the feeling. Reconnect with the instinct. That's your primal instinct. That's your primal urge. Human beings evolved not to the same level that deer did, but we've evolved as predator and prey. It's in you. Learn to feel. And when I say that, I mean the integration of all your senses. You know... Uh, the, the, you hear a sound that's not really the sound you were listening for, but it's something out of place. Sometimes it's it's the way another animal reacts in the forest that tells you something else is there. Sometimes it is pure feeling. There are times when you're standing, you're looking, you hear nothing, you see nothing, you, you smell nothing. It's just it's just you're just there, and all of a sudden those little tiny hairs on your neck just stand up. That's the primal instinct telling you something's there. It's designed to tell you. You're in danger. It's also designed to tell you, Mr. Predator, your prey is here. There's not a hunter who's ever really gone out and hunted the kind of ways that I've talked about today and really been there and really had those long eternal dialogues that's not felt that. And when you feel it, you know it. When you feel it, focus on it. Take it in. Reconnect with it. That's your ancestors telling you that this is inside of you. Let's talk a little bit as we get ready to uh, finish up today about dealing with, okay, once we've killed a deer, what the hell do we do with it? I've had people ask me to do a whole show on this. I, I, I guess I can someday, but it's hard to do. I mean, I'd have to go out and kill one and do video of it, and then i got to get somebody to video it for me, and my wife is not about doing that, and there's plenty of videos out there. But from a mile-high view, the first thing is inside that deer is a whole bunch of internal organs, and they weigh a considerable amount. And in most situations, I mean, if you're hunting on a, a, a place with deer, you know, like feeders and stuff like that, or set stands, and it's like hunters are coming in and out, uh, kind of a professional operation, they're going to want you to take that deer away from there uh, to dress it. Because you obviously can't have gut piles laying around underneath a deer feeder or something like that, like they have in South Texas. But in the real woods, when you're doing, I hate to say this, but real hunting, um you got the deer and you leave it there and the predators take care of it and the scavengers take care of it and it goes away. And by doing that, you massively reduce the weight that you have to carry with you and you leave something that you have no real use for where it, where it can go back to a natural state, where it can be broken down and become part of the earth again. And that way you don't have to deal with it when you come home. You also get rid of a lot of the blood when you do that. So uh, field dressing a deer... You're basically opening up the belly without cutting into the insides and removing everything. A couple things you have to look out for. One is the bladder. Generally, I always left the bladder in the deer. It's easier to get out using a saw to break the pelvic bone, uh, which can be done easily at home, and then kind of lift it out. Um, but everything else has got to go. When you get up to the chest cavity, you'll find what my uncle used to call curtains. And what that really is is the diaphragm on two sides. That's the muscle that allows the animal to breathe. And you have to cut through there to get into the chest cavity where the heart and the lungs are. 
And here's some of the graphic stuff. Once you've got that done, you run your arms all the way up to the inside of the throat, and you grab the trachea from the inside with one hand, you take your knife with the other hand, and you cut through it. And once you've done that, everything will just kind of pull out for you. You'll find the heart in this little bag, unless you've hit it and, and, and opened it up. Um, you'll have to cut into uh, pericardium, I think is what they call it, to get the heart out if you want to take the heart. And liver, you'll find off the side, it's pretty obvious. The rest of it, I've always just you know gotten rid of and left it out there. You might have to cut a few things to get out. But mostly, once you get that trachea cut and the diaphragm cut and you can reach through there, uh, everything will just kind of spill out for you. So that's field dressing. Skinning is something we always did at home. I have two schools of thoughts on skinning. One is you skin them hot and it's easier, and one is you skin them cold and it's easier. And I think that's they're just different. When they're when they're cold, uh, they're stiff and uh, it's a little harder to get off, but it's easier to work with. And uh, when they're hot, the skin separates easier, but everything's still kind of fluid and moving. And so it's up to you. I've done it both ways. I don't really have a preference. Um, if I get home and it's still early. And uh, and I and I, I'm not tired, and I don't just want to go to bed. Uh, I'll skin them hot, and otherwise, uh, if it's cool enough to let them hang, uh, or I'm in a place where there's like a cooler that you can use, I'll skin them cold. It, it doesn't really matter to me. But skinning, uh, I've seen people do it two different ways: one from the neck down, and one from the feet down, uh, back legs down. I like the back leg way better. Put them up what's called a gamble, uh, or whatever you can do to separate your back legs. And usually, what you do is you take the uh, the tendon, the Achilles tendon, which is much higher up on a deer than it is on a, on a man because they have that long foot, and cut a hole through each side. So the tendon stays attached. You put the knife behind that, and you get your hooks or whatever in there, and that'll hang up. You cut around the, the back, uh, the low part of the back legs, cut a line down coming to the groin, and work from there. And, I mean, there's plenty of videos, and there's plenty of uh, schematics online on how to do that. You won't know how to do it till you do it. You'll mess some stuff up. You'll lose some meat here and there. Just do it and, and, and get on with it. Uh, once I skin a deer, the next thing I do is quarter it, which means to take a, a large knife, and I take the two front legs, and uh, just kind of pull the leg out from the body, and without any sawing or anything, you can cut through that muscle. You can take the whole foreleg, the shoulder, uh, the lower shoulder, and the, and the lower hock all off on both sides. I'll take a saw, and I cut through and take the neck off, uh, and I'll go and I'll take the ribs off, And uh, after I've done that, uh, I'll just go down the back side, and I will bone out from all the way uh, across the back strap, all the way down to the, where the neck was. I'll just take out these long strips of meat. That's your back strap and what have you, right up to where the rump roast is. It's hard to explain, but you do it, you'll get it. So I take those two strips out, and uh, that's pretty much it. You've had it at that lower front quarter and all the back way, all the way to the deer. So you take a saw, and you cut that lower piece off, and what's left is mostly skeleton. And you can toss that or you can use it to make bone uh, bone stock like I talked about in the cooking section, which is where you roast those bones and you reserve the stock off of them. Um, then you'll have kind of a rump roast uh, piece, uh, which you can either bone out or leave together, and you cut your two back legs off. And that's pretty much quartered deer. It's more than four parts, but that's the way I generally quarter them. And I'll put that meat in a refrigerator. I'll let that meat age for a week before I cut it into, into serving sizes. Um And then you go into your boning and primary cuts, which I won't go into. Maybe I could do a whole show on this. Uh, but that's just, it's not as hard as you think it is. It is intimidating the first time you do it if you don't have anybody to do it with you. But odds are you can find somebody around you that butchers deer, and uh, you can go down there and learn what they do. And they'll be happy to let you do that. And you also probably find out that they charge so little, little to butcher a deer that you might want to just forego it, but I believe you need the skill. 
I believe you do need the skill because uh, you may have to rely on it someday. Uh, let me finish up with some thoughts on being a predator as a natural state. I said I wanted people to understand hunters, and I think you know more about hunting maybe now than you did when I began, unless, uh, unless this is all stuff you already knew. But if you're not a hunter, you've probably learned a lot. And hopefully you've learned something about you know the primalness and, and, and yes, the, the, the death part of it. But it's about more than that. For me, it's far more about the harvest side than the kill side. It's about the experience. It's about the pursuit. But when it comes down to the meat, it is about the fact that now I'm going to consume something that's 100% pure. No one went out and did it for me, and I earned the right to consume it. I didn't go into it, you know, even the person that, you know, keeps cattle or something like that. I didn't walk up to a tame animal and slit its throat or shoot it. I performed what was inside of me, and in return for that, I've harvested something that will nourish me and nourish my family. And it, it, it is very similar to the way I feel when I sit down to a salad that I grew. That harvesting component is something that's missing in our lives, and I think it's a hole in our lives today. And I'm not saying everybody needs to run out and hunt. Honestly, I don't want everybody to do it because there would be too many people out there doing it with the population we have today. And it's hard enough to find a place to be alone as it is. But some level of touching that I think is good for the human soul because I think it takes you back to what you are, a human being. It's the same thing. It's the same reason I tell you once in a while, walk in your backyard in your bare feet. You know, Cody Lundeen may do some crazy things on TV, and he may go places we would never go barefoot, barefoot, but he's got a point that touching the earth, that connectivity, and that harvest of, of, of a meat source are very, very integrated with each other. I also want to tell you something that you probably don't know about hunters. Sometimes we let one walk that we would have otherwise taken. And what I mean by that is there's times you're out, you're going to buck, and here's a doe, and you let her walk. Well, that's not really letting her walk because you weren't going to shoot her anyway. But there's probably a time in every hunter's life where he's had one arrow drawn or could have been drawn or gun up or something like that and let one walk. I let one walk, a big one. Um, it was the, the winter before I was going to go away and join the Army. And I knew I was going to join the Army at that point. It was a senior year of high school. We had chased this big buck for four years from the time I'd first gotten there. My dad had seen him, and and uh, he lived real close to where we lived. And, you know, it was... Uh, middle of deer season, and no one wanted to go hunting with me, and I just took the rifle and decided I'd still hunt and walk up the mountain. And I uh, came around a place, and I just got the drop on him. And there he was. And he was on a bank that was really like loose, like shale and, and slate. And you could tell he knew it. This deer knew he'd been hunted. Not the way a human would, but as the deer would know. He knew, and he knew the man had gotten to him. And he was a beautiful big buck. And I had that 3006, and I had all I had to do was level it and pull the trigger. And I also knew that it was probably the last time that I would hunt that deer. That by the time I came home, he would be gone. And I put the gun down, and I just looked at him, and I watched him struggle across the bank and walk away. If you think that hunters are simply killers, you're wrong. It's so much more than that. Killing is part of hunting. It is not hunting in itself. And as I fully close today, I'd like to leave you with some words paraphrased because I can't find the book because I think we packed it up for moving. Um, but these come from a gentleman who, who was one of my childhood heroes named Robert Rourke, 
who wrote several great books on hunting in Africa, and probably his best work was Use Enough Gun. And in there, I don't remember if it's Rourke's own words or if he's talking about what Harry Selby, his lifelong friend and professional hunter from Africa, had to say about this. But it goes something like this. Again, I'm paraphrasing and doing my best. To kill anything, simply to kill it, is murder, and that is a sin. But when you kill something to feed yourself or to feed people who depend on you, when you take something's life as a trophy even and make it immortal, it is not a sin, but in many ways it's quite beautiful. The deer that you take, or the, you know, it wasn't deer in there, but the, the, the water buck that you take, or the elephant, or the buffalo, will die a very cruel death by claw or by starvation in its old age. And no one will remember it. No one will care. But if you shoot that animal, you'll always remember the day of the deer or the day of the buffalo, or the day of the lion. And in that way, that animal will live on with you in ways it never could have in its natural state, because you are part of that natural state. We don't murder as hunters. We take part in the natural state of things. And as human beings, we have the ability to carry with us something that makes that animal's life more meaningful than it was simply as a piece of the ecosystem because we are the ones who tell stories. And I don't think I got it completely right, but that was the gist of it. That was the essence of it. And as a young kid, I read that book, checked it out from the library, couldn't afford to buy it. And uh, made an indelible impression on me. And uh, that's what hunting really is. That's what it really is. It's about feeding your family or feeding yourself or feeding others who depend upon you. And it's about being what you truly are. And when you kill, you don't do it with malice. You do it with extreme reverence and extreme respect. And there's even times when you have the opportunity to take a life that you pass on. But you don't need it that day. And sometimes those are the ones you really remember. The one that hangs on my wall that I took at, at 15, I will always remember. And the one that I let walk at 17 several years later, I'll always remember as well. Those are the memories that come from the hunting field. And on top of it, you get a skill set that will take you a long way in a tough situation. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Yeah.